On January 22, 1808, a ship docked in the port of Salvador on the northeastern coast of Brazil. Besides carrying artworks, documents, books, and money, lots, lots of money, perhaps the vessel's most precious cargo was Maria I, the Queen of Portugal. As she stepped off the ship after a long voyage from Lisbon, she became the first European monarch ever to set foot on colonial American soil. Escaping the Napoleonic invasion of Portugal, the monarchy, led by Maria's son, Prince Regent Dom Juan VI, sought to keep a hold on their power by sailing across the ocean to the colonies. Dom Juan's plan was to expand the Portuguese reign in Brazil, its biggest colony. Rich in gold with fertile soil and unmatched beauty, it was the empire's crown jewel. But 14 years later, the precious gem fell off the Portuguese crown. On September 7th, Brazil will celebrate the 200th anniversary of its independence from Portugal. Riddled with family betrayals and historical inconsistencies, this period in Brazil is a truly peculiar and fascinating one, especially when compared with its Latin American neighbors. Independence elsewhere on the continent was a story of revolutionaries and republics. In Brazil, it was a story of the emancipation of a prince from his father and the independence of a country that did not exist yet. In this special mini-series, we'll walk you through the eccentricities and myths of this period, its legacy in the country 200 years later, and how Brazil became Brazil. I'm Caroline Coutinho of the Brazilian Report, and this is 1822, a special four-part series about how an independent Brazil came to be. Dom João VI did not come to Brazil alone in 1808. With thousands of members of the royal court and thousands more civilians, the Portuguese arrivals doubled the population of the city of Rio de Janeiro, where they eventually settled. To account for the growing demographic, the city was transformed. Ornate fountains, bridges, and sidewalks were constructed. Roads were widened, streets were illuminated, and buildings were erected. Colonial facades were demolished and renovated, making way for the city's new imperial architecture. Grand public spaces began to adorn Rio de Janeiro, like the sprawling flora of the city's botanical gardens, which remains preserved to this day. Lined with palm trees and hidden grottos, the gardens were built as a sanctuary for foreign species of vegetation and a spectacle of floral beauty, much like the city itself. Travelers who were once disgusted by the immorality and rusticity of Rio de Janeiro now flocked to the city to admire its beauty. As Professor Kirsten Schutz of Salton Hall University titled her book on the construction of Rio de Janeiro, the city became a sort of Versailles of the tropics. Rio is no longer the capital of a colony. Rio is the capital of an empire. It's becoming metropolitan, right? So what does that mean? It means... On the one hand, investing in the city's infrastructure and, you know, really practical things, right? They need more um, 
They need more public fountains. They need uh, to build transportation infrastructure. They need to attend to the problem of hygiene, right? As the city begins to grow over the period of a, of a, of a few years, right, the, the records suggest that the city's population doubles, right? So that, that's a dramatic increase in demands on infrastructure that they, uh, that officials uh, seek to meet. And the, the institution that is at the center of this effort, I would argue, is a, a new institution created when the court arrives called the Intendancy of the Police. And it was modeled after the, uh, the Portuguese or the Intendancy of the Police that was in Lisbon, which was created in, in around 1760. Um, that institution was itself modeled after French um, police and policing institutions. Um, and, and all of these have a really broad understanding of policing as both, um, you know, uh, se- pro- providing security and safety, but also the, the well-being of the people living in the city. So the police intendancy ends up being in charge of a lot of that, uh, the, the, the infrastructural um, uh, improvements or the, the, the task of supervising um, improvements in the city's hygiene and so on. These projects were largely funded by donors within Brazil's existing elite, made up of merchants and plantation owners who profited from the colonial trade. A wealthy slave dealer, Elias Antonio Lopes, notably gifted his farm state in São Cristóvão to Dom João upon his arrival. The palace, featuring elaborate molded plasterwork and decorative paintings, served as a royal residency for almost a century. Bought, built, and maintained by slaves, the Quinta da Boa Vista characterized the paradox of the newly imperial Rio de Janeiro. There, there are the people that come on that first uh, fleet with the royal family. There are exiles that come in the years that follow. But it, it also is an increase in the enslaved population of the city, right? So, of course, there is this, once again, this agricultural economy that's growing around the city that demands or that is based on enslaved labor, But there's also an increase in um, a demand for enslaved labor in the city for services, right? For de- for for the the labor that's being used to um, expand the city's infrastructure, um, for the labor that's being used in in what we would call a kind of service economy. So the question of how Rio becomes metropolitan, I think, or how Rio becomes the capital of an empire, is really closely linked as well to how people grapple with the fact that Rio, there's this sort of self-conscious interest in Europeanizing the city or of, of making it more European at the same time that the city also becomes more African, right? Because of the, the arrival of, of many people um, coming from Africa. And of course, Brazilian aristocrats were not merely being charitable to the visiting monarchs. Now they were finally in the Americas. The previously voiceless elites had the opportunity to cozy up to Don Juan and his court. Uh, chroniclers point out that the king's ceremonial hand kissing, called the Benjamin, became this um, very frequent and very well attended event in the city. Right, so that you know, if you had. Uh, simply wanted to make an appearance to re- remind the king who you were, 
But also if you had, you know, something that you needed taken care of or a request, right? Now there was this opportunity. And the hand kissing paid off. Finally, after the arrival of the Portuguese court, Don Juan opened up Brazilian ports for trade with all friendly nations, ending the territory's colonial pact. No longer having to exclusively trade with Portugal, profits soared to Brazilian aristocrats. Not only did merchant gain access to new trading partners, but the opening of the ports meant the suspension of previous bans on domestic manufacturing in the colony. A new industrial class was forged, and so was a national economy. And Brazil's autonomy only grew from there. Aristocrats became comfortable in their royal favorability and with the court set up in their new tropical home. Even after Napoleon's defeat in Europe, the Portuguese looked at their increasingly wealthy established colony and began to ponder over its place in the crown's empire. Not only Don Juan, but some of his royal counselors, right? Some of the, the men closest to him, advising him, had themselves come to see Brazil as a kind of haven um, that was perhaps you know, better conceived in the long term. So the question was asked, with peace in Europe, should they stay or should they go? Should the Portuguese court return to its traditional moderate past in Lisbon or stay in Brazil, continuing to relish in its continental territoriality, freedom, popularity, and riches? Decisively indecisive, in December of 1815, Dom João decrees that Brazil would become a part of the United Kingdom of Portugal, Brazil and the Algarves. This is a decision that uh, put Brazil and Portugal in the same political level. Professor João Paulo Garrido Pimenta, a historian at the University of São Paulo and author of the book E Deixou de Ser Colônia, and it was no longer a colony. During three centuries, Brazil was a Portuguese colony. Now, in 1815, Brazil was a kingdom in the same political level as Portugal. Yet, this increasingly closer relationship between the court and Brazilian nationals was not popular on the other side of the Atlantic. Professor Hendrik Cray of the University of Calgary, describes the jealousy bringing back in Portugal. Because now so much of the spending of the, the royal court, um, that sort of thing is now concentrated in the Rio de Janeiro, so because they're they're needing to um, to house all of these people. People want to start building their building houses in time, their um the spending of the monarchy, all of that. So much of it's now happening in Rio de Janeiro. They're setting up all of the administration of the Portuguese Empire, everything from from libraries to to archives to um you know, the treasury and, and the various uh, various other ministries, all of that is now happening in, in Rio de Janeiro. And if I can sort of bring in a little little anecdote that uh, was kind of interesting for me years ago in my time of dissertation research, um, I was doing various things in the, in the National Archive in Rio de Janeiro and was looking through some of the sort of uncatalogued material on military affairs that I was interested in. Um, and suddenly there came this box of material that was all about uh, appointments to government posts in Mozambique, which hmm. I had never really thought. But of course, in the 1810s, Mozambique is governed from, or at least the Portuguese areas of Portuguese control in, in modern-day Mozambique, the, the colony, are governed from Rio de Janeiro. 
And so that was one of those reminders of, yeah, okay, this really is a is a different uh, uh, regime here. And that speaks, I think, to the way that the Portuguese uh, elite, who, for area, who are obviously not as happy about this once the French are finally expelled. Ignore and abandon. Revolution was afoot in Europe. After a military insurrection in the Portuguese city of Porto, liberal constitutionalists across the empire's old capital demanded the monarchy's return. Under immense political pressure and threats of republicanism, Don Juan VI caved. In 1821, the royals retraced the route they had sailed only 13 years before. The arrival in Brazil had marked an event of historic proportions, both in significance and in effect. A monarch had not only resigned in, but revolutionized an American colony. Yet, they hoped to continue their rule from abroad, just as they had done before. But the changes they left in Brazil were irreversible. Thirteen years of growing profits, importance, and independence. Portuguese revolutionaries wished to return to status quo, to recolonize the territory and strip it of its decades of glory. But of course, the cat was out of the bag. The monarchy wished to strengthen its hold on Brazil during their stay. Yet, it had only exposed it to the ideas of liberty and power. The colony got a taste of independence, and it was hungry for more. But who would offer that freedom to the monarchy? Well, another member of the royal family. On its return to Lisbon, the royal family left one member behind. Dom Juan's son, Dom Pedro I, was appointed the Prince Regent of Brazil, tasked with overseeing and controlling the territory. And control it he did. In fact, the king's son led the Brazilian movement for independence from his own father and from the crown that he once wore. In episode 2, we'll see how a prince became a king. 1822 was written and produced by Eric Zachman. Edits and fact-checking by Ewan Marshall. As always, we'll ask you to give us a 5-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It only takes a second and it will help us reach a broader audience. Or, better yet, sign up for The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model, and your subscriptions fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. If you're already a subscriber, then you can give us some extra support by filling our coffee mugs with donations on Buy Me A Coffee. This membership program offers special perks like behind-the-scenes content and exclusive newsletters. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report for more. We want to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members, Felipe Saito, José Rosi Stankovic, Gabriela Graf Ines, Emerging Market Muser, Yadin Iftar, Tonika Thompson, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffren, Anna Lan, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. I'm Caroline Coutinho, thanks for listening, and I'll be back with episode 2 of this four-part series. Music